When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast, and now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists. And for the last 10 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, close listeners of the CME will know that I was so excited about UFC 280 that I had actually convinced myself all of last week that it was last weekend. Yeah. Totally forgot that before we get down to the business in Abu Dhabi, we still had to get through this UFC fight night on Saturday where Alexa Grasso ended up defeating Viviana Rajo by unanimous decision. Jonathan Martinez scored a second round TKO over Cub Swanson. And it's a thing that happened, so we might as well talk about it for a minute here to begin this episode of The Proper before we get into what I think will be essentially a full court press preview of UFC 280. But did you watch the event on Saturday? Did you have any thoughts? Did you carry anything with you after seeing it? I watched absolutely none of it on Saturday, but I circled back and I got caught up. Um my daughter had a birthday party to go to, panda themed party, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, that that was right square in the middle of the day, took up ate up a lot of the oxygen in the room over here. Who's uh who was throwing the party? Was it Puff Daddy? Cuz it's you know, was it mm-hmm. Puffy's panda party, his yeah. annual panda party out there on Martha's Vineyard? Yeah, she and she and Puffy have been close for a while. Um they they met at uh Privé uh a while back. Uh, over some uh, Patron and really bonded. And so, yeah, of course, naturally she's got to go to the party. However, once I got caught up with this fight night event, let me tell you something. You know who a fella I do not want to be kicked by? Not in my face, not in my body, not in my leg, not anywhere on my person. That had to be Jonathan Martinez. Yeah. Because that guy, man, I, I, I appreciate... Here's where you like to have... Like, it, where it comes in handy to have retired or semi-retired fighters in the commentary booth because Paul Felder is in there talking about the problem presented by Jonathan Martinez's kicks, which he does a good job of mixing up where he's going to kick you just really painfully in the leg at times, also just going to stick out that teep into your belly from time to time, and there's to throw a thudding kick toward kind of the area of your head or upper torso. And he's like, you know, I don't know what you're supposed to do about that because... What do you do? Block it? He'll break your arm. He wishes you would block it. He wishes you would stick your little little forearm out there to stop that baseball bat that's coming at you. 
And so then you either got to be way out of the range or you got to be charging all the way in and he's ready for you when you do that too. Like yeah. I was, I was really, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm a Cub Swanson guy. Sure. I want to see Cub Swanson do well. Also, he's a, he's a gentleman of a certain age. See, at that's this exactly point. what I was going to say. He's right in our demo. He's 38 years old. So for those of us that are getting up there in years, verging into our early 40s here, mid-40s for me, for God's sakes, uh, this is a tough one. It's a tough one to see uh, Cub Swanson go out like this. And yeah, uh, the older you get, the less fun it seems to get kicked in any <laughs> part of your body, especially by a much younger guy who's throwing those kicks with bad intentions. Yeah, and it just seems like Cub Swanson, uh, there were some moments in the first round where it looked like, uh-oh, he might be in trouble. We, we might end this one early. And he did an admirable job of battling back into that fight and trying to yeah. find a way to get back in it and, and, and turn the tide somehow. And still, when that guy just has the ability to just thump on your leg, especially once he found that spot on the inside of Cub Swanson's lead leg, and then it was trouble. It's like, okay, he knows that one hurt. He, it's not going to be long before he kicks you right there in that same spot again. And there's just not, what can you do? He throws it out so quick, so easy. There's not a lot of tell to it. It's, it's fast, but it's also hard as hell. He doesn't have to load up on it at all. And either you stay so far away from him that you're basically not fighting anymore at that point. You can't do a whole lot if you're that far out. Or you have to try to charge in, and then he's going to clip you with an elbow, grab you a knee in the head. Yeah. And damn, man, like, I don't... I, one of those where if I was in Cub Swanson's corner and he comes back there after round one, I'd be like, shh, I don't know what to tell you, man. Let's roughneck him. Yeah, I don't see, know. Th th this is why you'll never be in my corner because I don't need <laughs> to have a tough first round and then wander back between rounds and have my corner man, have my, uh, my Swami, have my spiritual advisor be like, I don't know what to tell you. He's good. Didn't yeah, you think he was really good out there? Man, I think this kid's going places. What do you think? I mean, you you, you felt his power. Yeah. Uh, we talked about this. Hold a on. I'm going to run to the sports book real quick. See if I can get some action <laughs> yeah. down. See if I can get an in-game bet down. Uh, we talked about this on Friday during the power hour that Cub Swanson had rebounded somewhat nicely from a rough uh, two years that he had back in 2017 to 2019 when he lost four in a row to the likes of guys like Brian Ortega, Frankie Edgar, Hanato Moicano and Shane Burgos. Since then, he'd gone three and one with his only loss being to Giga Chikadze back in May of last year. But now suddenly you fast forward and depending on where you want to, where you want to cut it off, how you want to look at it. He's now last lost two of his last three, including this uh, loss to Jonathan Martinez. And one of the things we had talked about on Friday was in some ways you could understand how Cub would want to go down to bantamweight. Because as we said at the time, it seemed like a target rich environment for him. Uh, a lot of tough guys, a lot of good fights, a lot of like maybe high profile fights uh, for him down there. When by comparison at featherweight, maybe he felt like he had already lost to some of the top guys in that division and thought maybe, you know, he could find new life down there in the lighter weight class. But one of the things we also often say is that that frequently is the fighter's false friend mm -hmm. to think you're going to go down to this other weight class. Uh, and and restart things there, especially if you're getting up there in years. Did we find out that when you have a target-rich environment, some of the uh, some of the targets are guys you wish maybe you hadn't taken on, taken to the range? Well, 
One thing that was pretty evident as soon as they got in there together was if you're hoping to drop down 10 pounds and then enjoy a big size advantage, that wasn't there. Yeah. So I don't know if that's just how that particular matchup shook out. I don't know if that's just what he's going to be dealing with if he stays down there at bantamweight. I don't know. But it's like, man, if I go through all the trouble of losing 10 extra pounds, I better be the bigger guy in there. I better be able to bully some people around. That's That would seem like part of the whole point of doing the thing. Didn't seem yeah. like he got that advantage there. Yeah. Uh, and then Alexa Grasso obviously defeats Viviana Rajo in the main event. As I as I said, uh, you know, with the thing that we talked about with Grasso last week essentially was she was a person who had come into the UFC after a career in Invicta with a lot of hype around her. You know, she, she went two and three uh, in her first or three and three actually in her first six UFC fights since then she's kind of put it together now has four wins in a row. And you know, down there at women's flyweight, we're kind of scrounging around for anyone we can find to fight uh, Valentina Shevchenko. I did notice when they asked Alexa Grasso about it, about the possibility of fighting Valentina Shevchenko, she is kind of like they, when you ask somebody to help you move (laughs) and they're like, yeah, yeah, I'd love to. You know, that's definitely something that's on my list of things to do. Uh, I got a couple other things that I'd like to do first. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. Alexa Grasso was pretty much like, sure, yeah, you know, I'll, I would fight Valentina Shevchenko eventually. I would like to have one more uh, main event fight before I step up there and go for the title. But sure, that's that's on my list of things to do at some point. You know how every once in a while somebody will become a champion and motherfuckers are coming out of retirement to call that person out? <laughs> yeah. Kind yeah. of the opposite situation with, with Chevy Shanks there, where people are being like, hey, you look pretty good. You think you're ready to fight the champ? And people are going, well, I, you know, let me look at the planner. The next, phew, oh man, the next four to six months are rough for me. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, got a lot of, lot of shows I need to catch up on. This training camp really put me behind on some of my stories. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll get back to you, though. I'll let you know. Yeah. Yeah. Reminder, you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast proper, as we've been telling you for the last couple of weeks now. We would invite you all to go check out our new merchandising shop. Fall is in the air. It's getting to be hoodie weather out there, Ben. Getting to be hoodie season. And we got your Dundasso hoodies in stock over at the new Co-Main Event Podcast Merchandising Shop. You want to drink some some coffee? You want to get into some hot tea here as fall starts to take over? Maybe check out one of our daddest man on the planet coffee mugs or are you fucking kidding me coffee mugs. You can also get yourself into our most popular item. And of course, that would be the Bobby Nux shirt. Celebrate your boy Robert Whitaker with the Bobby Nux black flag t-shirt. Like all the merchandise at the Co-Main Event Podcast shop designed by by our guy Johnny Ashcroft from over there at Superconductor. Uh, Can't recommend them highly enough. If you have design needs of any kind, hit them up at studiosuperconductor.com or on Instagram at Studio Superconductor. If you want to find the shop, it's easy to get to. You just go to our website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says shop. That'll get you there. We'd also like to invite you to join the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon. You know, this is an independent show. The only way we keep it rolling is through 
the generosity of our listeners, listeners like you. We have a patronage tier for every budget. Go to patreon.com slash co-main event and sign up. Get yourself into the live chat, man. Every Wednesday, more than an hour usually these days of us just taking questions from the beloved patrons of the CME. Show up on Friday for the power hour, an entire additional curated hour of mixed martial arts talk. People seem to love that featuring the dreaded but amazingly named co-main event podcast, Patreon Power Hour, Power Rankings, and for the true heads, for the top two tiers, the 10 and $20 levels, get yourself into doing the damn thing. That's every Thursday. We talk about all the stuff that's not MMA related, but we feel like still might appeal to our audience. So hit us up over there, patreon.com slash co-main event. We'd love to have your support. We got music this week from old school CME listener, beloved patron, Doug Ty, a.k.a. Spider Fighting. He describes his music as, quote, this is one of my favorites. Yep. <clears throat> Instrumental beat music that straddles the non-existent line between aging indie dork and backpack boom bap. I think it's pretty cool. If you like what you hear from him on the show, check out more over at SoundCloud.com slash spider fighting three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one the champion has a name and it is charles Oliveira. but will that still be the name of the champion a week from today or might the champion have a different name and in round number two what a pleasing blast from the past it is for the ufc to give tj dillashaw a shot at the men's bantamweight title Seriously, very retro, very 2018. Is this like when somebody wears an ugly affliction shirt from 2010 as a joke? Hilarious. I love it. And in round number three, well, Sean, we've invested a lot of time and energy into building you into a star. We've carefully curated your first nine UFC fights to give you the best chance to live up to your obvious potential. We brought you along step by step at each turn, slowly increasing your visibility. You know what? We're bored. Fuck it. How about you fight Peter Yawn next? <laughs> Signed, UFC Matchmakers. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. We got some long listener mail this week. Okay. I got to be honest with you. Some people are stretching their legs here. Uh, our first piece of listener mail comes to us from frequent emailer David E. Lottere. Nice. He's taken the uh, the liberty of splitting his email into two separate chapters, he calls oh. them. Okay. So here that we go. Is... I mean, you know what? I appreciate him telling you, like, just setting a little expectation right off the bat that we should all settle in and get comfortable. Find an yeah. easy chair for these questions. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I know. He's, he's not, uh, he's being upfront about it, if yeah. nothing else. Chapter one. As a 36-year-old father with a 9 p.m. preferred bedtime, my days of shit-eating wildly are over. However, I still try to watch the good cards and occasionally go back and watch good fights on shitty cards. I pay for ESPN Plus because the price is low enough that I can justify it. Allegedly, I never pay for uh, for PPV. Streaming big UFC events sucks, though. Like, it really sucks. The streams buffer and cut out, and it really ruins the experience. It's like getting a steak for free from a fancy restaurant, but the steak fell on the floor in the kitchen first chapter two i'm not paying 80 dollars to watch a ufc card by myself i'll have my floor steak thank you however (laughs) i would pay 20 dollars. i would even pay 40 dollars for a card like the ufc 280 my questions 
What percentage of UFC pay-per-view watchers are paying for the privilege? Would it be financially beneficial for the UFC to lower the price so that people like me actually shell out the money? As of now, they get my ESPN Plus subscription and that's it. If they lowered the price, I might just slide another Benjamin across the table. Discourse, please. This is interesting. Um, I mean, first of all, lest we get our hopes up that the UFC is on the verge of drastically lowering pay-per-view prices, I would point out that all the trends seem to be going in the other direction. Yeah, yeah. The -hmm. pay-per-view price and the cost of the ESPN Plus subscription. You can set your watch by their increases now. It's just kind of a regular thing. And there's no, no sort of indication that we're feeling the crunch and therefore considering a a drastic reimagining of how we price pay-per-views but this was something that came up a lot when you'll recall uh, a year or so ago when Dana White was talking all that stuff about cracking down hardcore on piracy of pay-per-views and how he's watching people's houses listening to their phone calls waiting for them to turn it on and then he was going to bring the UFC wrath down upon them and there would be much crying and begging and wailing and gnashing of teeth and he yeah. was good, he was looking forward to it all big big talk that just vanished yep. you never hear him say that shit anymore and i remember how frequently all the other websites would just run it whenever he said this stuff that are doing this stuff and then I tried to look into, for a story for The Athletic, is there any indication that any of this is actually happening? Is the UFC actually doing this stuff? And the answer I got from the UFC was, hey, that's just Dana being Dana. But, you know, we're working on some anti-piracy stuff. And then when I talked to people who are anti-piracy experts in various ways, some of them using the data of that piracy gives you to show you here's the audience that is interested in your stuff but not paying for it now, and here are some strategies you could have for trying to turn them into paying customers. Some of it being like, we're just experts at figuring out where the piracy is coming from and stopping it. And one of the things that they both said is that there are a few main factors that go into people pirating your stuff, and one of the big ones always is cost, and that you can usually rely on lowering the cost and at least getting some of those people in the door. Because, as David E. Lottery points out here, the streaming experience is often not as good as the the paid experience. Now, some of those people are getting around it because they're they're using, uh, you know, they're 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 telling their computer they're in the Netherlands and they're just watching a local TV broadcast that is has like commentary and stuff better that or, or provides them with some better viewing options than what they feel like they'd get even if they paid the premium price. So uh, that's still going on, but. Some of it is that people are going, I don't think this is worth as much as you are asking for it, but I might be willing to pay more regularly for a lower price of it. And the UFC is saying, no, like we're only going the other direction with it. So like, I do think that is worth considering, but I also think like, it's hard for me to imagine the UFC, like it would take a huge drop off in pay-per-view buys and at this point, it's not even really a UFC's decision to make. It's ESPN's. But it, it takes something drastically changing for them to be like, we need to go way back to the drawing board and even think about how much money we're asking for this thing. Like, I, I don't I don't see this being a viable model forever. Like, the, the, the question about how many people are paying for the pay-per-views, I think as the audience gets younger or like some people churn out on the upper end of the audience and a younger 
more tech savvy audience uh, makes up more and more of your viewership base, they might be better and better at finding those streams or finding another alternative means to watch it. Maybe you feel that at some point, but I don't think that they're there yet. And I don't think they're going to let go easily. Yeah, I know I've said this before, but people talking about uh, the UFC lowering the price of pay-per-views always reminds me of the old Hold Steady song. She only pays attention to the prices of cigarettes. She says she hopes they'll get cheaper. (laughs) Cigarettes ain't getting cheaper, man. And neither are UFC pay-per-views. I don't have a lot of faith in the UFC in a lot of departments, but one area in which I do have tremendous faith in them is that they have done their due diligence in the best and most effective ways to separate you from your money. And I think that if they felt like they could make more money charging less for their pay-per-views, that they would know that and they would be doing it. I think that they are pursuing the the track that makes them the most money and they're going to continue to do that until it doesn't. And then they'll change it. But probably not before that would be my guess. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Ewan. This is, this is about uh, what you were talking about last week about uh, nerds, Ben. He says, your discourse on the nerds already being here in the MMA fandom reminded me of an anecdote from my own nerdly time at the University of Oxford. Oh, here we go. The invitation for Dana White to speak to the union there. It came about through my office mate, Samir, who is now a full professor in maths at another European university. Okay, see, among among the the tales of... uh People emailing the podcast from across the pond. Maths is right up there with whilst. I love it. Yeah. Love it. Uh, Samir and a couple of his sweaty grappling boys with a Z pitched the idea and set up the visit to coincide with the UFC London card. And Dana gave them a bunch of tickets to the UFC as a thank you. Nerds rule, he says. Do you remember this? Do you remember this shit where they brought Dana White to speak at Oxford? This is uh, 2010, I believe this happened, and I had buried this deep in my mind brain, but as soon as Ewan emailed us to ask us about it, I did in fact remember that Dana White made an appearance at Oxford, and there was a video floating around of it for a while. The debate club, yeah, right? The Oxford debate club. Um, okay. It was, was it not this one where... Um, he sat there afterwards and was talking about the problem with boxing was that the, the boxers made too much money. Was that a different thing that where, cause I remember a video coming out of him talking to, it was one of those things where Dana White talks to a bunch of people he doesn't usually talk to, yeah. not fight sports people. And I don't know if it was this actual event or something else where, you know what, was, for the purposes of this conversation, let's just pretend like it was this one. Cause it probably was. It was either this one or one like it around the same time, but it was one that I have thought of often because it's one where uh, Dana White got kind of caught up on a roll speaking his mind and sort of inadvertently said the quiet part out loud, which was if you pay the fighters too much money, then you don't have as much control over them. They aren't as desperate. They, They aren't as willing to take fights whenever you need them to take fights and to go out there and pour all their blood onto the canvas for you uh, because they don't absolutely have to through sheer financial necessity. And basically that like us keeping the money also helps us keep control over the fighters. And it was like, "Mm, I don't know if you realize what you just admitted there. (laughs) 
Dana White getting invited to speak at Oxford. Next question this week comes to us from Nick in Australia. This is another somewhat long one, but I'm going to read it. Uh, He writes, Jake Matthews has fought 16 times in the UFC since 2014, mostly on Asia Pacific cards. He's won two EON bonuses. He's arguably bonuses. Okay. Sure. He's arguably not and has never been a gatekeeper, needle mover, rising star, or title contender. His best effort was probably against Li Jingliang, whom he defeated on points. He's not known as a KO King, submission specialist, or Gaethje Chandler Sanchez type warrior. He's most well known. His most well known opponent was probably Kevin Lee, against whom he was KO'd in round one. Image wise, he's sort of the guy that could walk around a fan expo and not get recognized. On the weekend, there's another tell that this is a an email coming in from overseas on the weekend. He posted on Twitter, see below and showed several images indicating a comfortable lifestyle. This seeds seems at odds with the plaintiffs in two court cases, uh, several disgruntled title holders, a number of former UFC pay-per-view stars, and even some of the media. What do you make of this? Is Jake just living within his means or is fighter income is fighter as is fighters actual income way different to what is reported. So even lower tier read ESPN content filler journeyman can make a comfortable living. Uh, now you saw this, I assume yeah. tweet from Jake Matthews, where he essentially was like, uh, uh, as a blue collar guy, I think the money that we get from the UFC is great. And people who complain about it are basically wimps who don't win fights. I'm paraphrasing, but like that was sort of the message from Jake Matthews. And in some ways, I think you can understand how some people feel this way, because if you're, chosen profession is MMA fighter, professional MMA fighter, there's a good possibility, a good chance that you do get paid the most that you could get paid if you fight in the UFC. The problem is that that's not really the question that you should be asking yourself. The question isn't, is the UFC paying me money to where I uh, can post these pictures of myself looking like I'm doing okay? The question is, how much money is there and how much of it is the UFC keeping? That's the question you got to ask yourself, Jake Matthews. Yeah. And it seems like he is just coming at it from a completely different starting point rather right. than asking that question at all. Uh, I also want to point out, so here's his tweet where he says, as a kid from a blue-collar part of Melbourne, I believe the UFC pay is great. The fighters that complain either don't win fights or are looking for a quick money grab and have overvalued themselves. Um, and, you know, he also has a bunch of other stuff about... I mean, the thing to me is he gets into an argument, basically, with people who are saying, you should be paid more. You and the other fighters should be paid more. And those are the people you want to argue with? Because that seems odd to begin with. And then... uh Today, or well, I guess it was today, where he is, is 10 hours ago, this this should go in the Twitter Hall of Fame for acting like you're trying to smooth things over, but you're actually not doing that at all. As fighters, we must forgive our haters for their arrogance. They lack a warrior spirit, humility, empathy, and the ability to admit they are wrong. I forgive my haters and wish you nothing but the best. God bless. Then follows it up with, this is not satirical. It comes from a place of genuine sympathy. I couldn't imagine going through life without any morality or values. May you all find your way. Prayer hands emoji. Now that's, that's amazing. Right. That's are you fucking kidding me? Worthy right there. (laughs) I mean, I, again, if your, if your point is basically 
hey, how could the pay in the UFC be so bad if I can afford a place to live and cars to drive? And people are going, well, hey, we weren't saying that everybody who fights in the UFC is basically like Oliver Twist and Rags uh, bemoaning their station around the orphanage uh, between fights. We're just saying the split is not fair. Now, maybe Jake Matthews is making as much as Jake Matthews deserves to make as a fighter. And and if so, and if he's happy with how much he's making, that's, that is great. Maybe you could also make the argument, and people have, that it's not the guys like Jake Matthews who are underpaid. It's the guys at the very top. Because the UFC could probably, and I'm sure will, will make this point in contract negotiations when it comes up, that if Jake Matthews has never existed, the UFC bottom line still looks pretty much exactly the same. That it, it doesn't it, take away Jake Matthews from the Jenga tower that is the UFC revenue, and it does not topple over. It's the guys at the very top, the George St. Pierre's, uh, back when he was the, 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 the kingpin of, the king of pay-per-view, as Dana White called him. Um, the people who are main eventing these, these pay-per-views, the people who the UFC really relies on, who they are being underpaid. And just in general, when you look at how much of the money the UFC is keeping versus how much the money other sports leagues keep, I don't see how you can make the argument that, like, if you're saying essentially that, like, fighters, we're all making what we deserve and anybody who's complaining is just, it's just because they suck. There's a bunch of pro athletes in other sports who are looking at you and just kind of sadly shaking their head. Yeah. Because if you're the Jake Matthews of Major League Baseball, like, you, you are, you have made millions of dollars playing baseball. Even if you're, you know, the, 20th best shortstop in the league. You're making millions of dollars. If, yeah. Shit, man, if you're the Jake Matthews of the NHL, if you're the 20th best like defenseman in the NHL, you're making tons of money. We we're, were talking just when we were uh, doing Cracking Up last week on doing the damn thing about, uh, you know, just point out one random hockey player we were thinking about. That guy's making Francis Ngannou money, making yeah. like 650 grand a year, and he's not even a star player. And, and, that's, and it's not even a one of the major, like, very top-level sports in North America. And so if, if fighters are looking around and being like, hey, man, we got it, great. Like, man, you you need not be looking at just, like, can I afford rent? And and can can I put can I afford to put gas in the car? That's not the question you should be asking, especially because you're not going to be able to do this when you're 50. And then what are you going to have for it? Like, why isn't there a pension plan for you? Why isn't there some kind of ongoing health care for you? All this stuff that these other sports do have. And you don't have it. And yeah. maybe you just don't realize it yet. Yeah. Uh, it kind of reminds me of people who who watch every UFC fight, watch every pay-per-view, pay for it all. It's I like I, when I read this kind of stuff, I'm like, man, if and like you said, if Jake Matthews is happy with the money he makes more power to him, like I'm not trying to undermine his joy. If he's if like he feels great about it, that's that's terrific. But like if that's the truth, man, the UFC does not deserve him. The UFC doesn't deserve people like that who are just like, man, this is great. Thank you. Thank you for paying me 15% of revenue while you keep 85%. This is just outstanding. I mean, if he's happy with it, that's that's terrific. But you know who's really happy with it? The UFC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, let's do one more. Uh, da, 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 da. Let's see here. What do we got here? All right, we'll do this one uh, for uh, from All Jermaine Copper. You see okay. what he did there? 
Mm-hmm. He writes, the MMA Twitter sphere was up in arms this weekend when Aljamain Sterling and Leon Edwards took pictures with somebody named Andrew Tate. I've never heard of this guy. I'm looking to you fine folk for enlightenment. Who the F is Andrew Tate? And is this a big deal? Is this as a big deal as people are making it seem? I got to admit that uh, Andrew Tate is one of these people where I only heard about his existence once people were mad at him. Yeah, me too. But it does fit into a pattern, it seems, that you have noted, Chad, that whenever the world in general or the mainstream culture has zeroed in on somebody who they think is a bad guy, MMA fighters rush to that person. Yep. I like to call it find the villain. (laughs) They do it over and over again. MMA fighters will find that villain, shake hands with him, take a picture, get on the mic, talk about what a great guy he is. Find the villain. Now, again, I don't know too much about Andrew Tate. I mean, I think that, like, it seemed that Aljamain was, people were saying, hey, we see you. It seems like you're friends with this guy. What's up? Uh, and then Aljamain, for some reason, at, at some point in his Twitter interactions over the weekend, I saw just enough of it to be like where he's talking about um, who is to blame if you are walking home in a bad neighborhood and are raped. And you're just like, whoa, man. I don't know what made you think that that was a good way, even conversation for you to get into. But I can tell you, it's because it's actually kind of a simple answer. The rapist. The rapist is always the one who's responsible. End of discussion. And see, then he gets into this kind of back and forth with people. People are mad at him. I don't know exactly where all that stands. It seemed like it was an ongoing conversation. And uh, I was choosing to use my weekend to go outside and touch some grass, as they say. But I want to read, this is one thing that is interesting to me, because uh, this is from Ryan Harkness on Twitter. Uh, Ryan Harkness has been in the, the MMA media game for a long time, and he's screenshotted this thing from some article about Andrew Tate. Uh, and it says that, you know, taking some text from Andrew Tate's website, and I think this has since been deleted, uh, but it said he's ver- selling these various mentoring and self-help packages for young men, which, again, Chad, I'm just going to say, we messed up by starting an MMA podcast instead of becoming some kind of self-actualization gurus because that seems to be where the money is. One of these packages was the PhD program, which stands for Pimp and Hose Degree. <laughs> this package had a description which has since been deleted. Quote, I've been running a webcam studio for nearly a decade, Tate wrote on the site. I've had over 75 girls work for me, and my business model is different than 99% of webcam studio owners. Over 50% of my employees were actually my girlfriend at the time, and of all my girlfriends, none were in the entertainment industry before they met me. Uh, or the adult entertainment industry before they met me. Literally, that was my job, he continued. My job was to meet a girl, go on a few dates, sleep with her, test if she's quality, get her to fall in love with me to where she'd do anything I say, and then get her on webcam so we could become rich together. Whether you agree or disagree with what I did with their loyalty, submission, and love for me doesn't matter. You cannot reject the results, and the results are simple. My girlfriends would do more for me than 99.9% of men's wives would do for them. So that seems like a bad guy. Yep, this seems pretty shitty. And you know what? Whether it's a guy who's just on the internet being like, hey, I have a a method for manipulating women I would like to sell to you, or whether it's an actual goddamn warlord, MMA fighters just rush to find that villain. Find the villain. Put their arms right. around him, pose for some pictures. That is going to do it for... Listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you would like to air to the podcast, 
In future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, I feel like Charles Oliveira versus Islam Mahachev is one of the more talked about and potentially evenly matched UFC main events of recent memory. Uh, We've already had a bunch of people come out and weigh in about who they think is going to win. Some people saying Charles, some people saying Islam. Uh, Live look at the odds over at the DraftKings Sportsbook, and it looks like Islam Mahachev is currently going off as a minus 180 favorite. And I got to say, I'm a little surprised about that. Remember, though, if you want to cash in on all the excitement of UFC 280, you can head over right now to the DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sportsbook and betting partner of the UFC. New customers can bet $5 on UFC 280 and get $200 in free bets if your fighter wins. If you haven't tried DraftKings Sportsbook today, could be the day. You want even more action? You can also double your winnings on a same-game parlay. Combine multiple bets like which fighter will win, how long the fight will last, and more. Everyone who wants to boost their winnings, place a UFC 280 same-game parlay today. Chad, personally, I think this line on Charles Oliveira to win by KO, TKO, or DQ at plus 550, I think that might be the one to jump on. I'm just saying. Wow. Plus 550. You heard it here first, people. Do you agree with Ben? Do you think he's full of it? Either way, download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use the promo code COMAINEVENT and throw $5 on UFC 280 and get $200 in free bets if your fighter wins. That's the code COMAINEVENT, all one word, this Saturday at the DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the UFC. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See our show notes for details. What are we talking about for a submission line, though? What, do you, what if you want Chucky Olives by sub? What do you get? Only about plus three hundred. How about okay, that? So the so the TKO the the KO TKO is the longer odds. Yes. Okay. Or, right. or the bigger payoff is the way I'm choosing to think of it. Now, one of the things that I, that I think every time I start thinking about this uh, Charles Oliveira Islam Mahachev fight, and I'm super excited for it. It's one of these matchups that we've had circled on the calendar for a long time. It seems like two guys kind of at the top of their game who we're going to meet uh, for what is technically the vacant UFC lightweight title, but essentially Oliveira comes in as the incumbent champion here. We took his belt away because he missed weight by a fraction of a pound or whatever. Uh, but this is one where even if you don't think Charles Oliveira is going to win, the Islam Mahachev game plan would seem to give Charles Oliveira a lot of opportunities to win. Because if you expect Islam to fight the way he has fought in many of his other fights, he will go in there, try to take Charles Oliveira down, hold him there for five rounds, get a stoppage if he can, but essentially uh, employ the game plan that we all like to call the Habib. And if he does that, like that's kind of Charles Oliveira's wheelhouse in some ways, right? 
Yeah, uh, definitely. I think that one of the things that's going to make Oliveira different from a lot of the people Mahachev has fought is that he's not terrified of the prospect of having to fight off his back. And he's right. not terrified of the idea of being taken down. So I think that he's going to he's gonna be comfortable with that possibility and with that that realm of fighting. And that's going to make a difference not only in terms of how the fight goes if and when it actually gets there, but also how he fights before that. Because a lot of the times, and we saw this uh, with Habib a whole lot earlier in his career. And again, I don't want to get too much into like acting like Islam is just Habib 2.0 because they are different. And they, they approach fights uh, differently. I think Islam it tends to be a little bit more wide open on the feet sometimes going after it. But a lot of times if you're the guy where your opponents come in being like, he wants to take you down and maul you against the fence or on the mat. And you, that's the thing you've got to stop. It, it shuts down their striking game because, or at least limits their striking game because everything they're throwing, they've got it in the back of their minds. Don't give him a takedown. Don't, yeah. don't, don't throw a leg out there that he can use to take you down. Don't open up with uh, punch combinations where he can just change levels on you and take you down. And so it, it hinders their offense because they're worried about that inevitable takedown kind of thing. But if you go in there thinking, I don't care if you take me down, if you take me down, I'm going to try to submit you off my back or sweep you or, or something then maybe you don't have that that same trepidation about throwing what you want. Plus, if there's one guy who is comfortable at this point in five-round title fights, even if they don't go his way for the entirety of the fight, it ought to be Charles Oliveira, man. The guy's yeah. been making a habit of just getting dropped and sometimes nearly finished uh, early on in these title fights and then coming back to win. That seems like a guy who's got a lot of confidence and comfortability with these types of big fights at this point, right? Yeah, it's very strange that it doesn't feel like he is more respected than he is. You know what I'm saying? Like he was the champion, continues to sort of uh, still be the de facto champion. He hasn't lost a fight since 2017. He has won a bunch of fights in a row. He routinely picks up performance of the night bonuses uh, for his victories. And yet it kind of still feels like people are looking around or some people, I should say, there are some dissenting opinions, of course, but, uh, you know, I see a lot of people looking around kind of acting like this is Islam Mahachev's fight to win. And like I said, at the top of the round, I am a little surprised at the odds. What do you make of yeah. these odds? Islam Mahachev minus 180. Don't you think at least some of that is that Charles Oliveira has been around for so long. He's been in the UFC for so long. I mean, he's been in the UFC since 2010. And in that time, he was a work in progress for a lot of it. And so we've seen him not look great. We've seen him be beaten. We've seen him have some bad performances or at least some, you know, less than championship level performances in that time. And so I think we look at him and it's easier to to have the totality of his UFC experience kind of in your mind where it, if you come out and you're 22 and one by the time you, you challenge for a title, we haven't seen you look too vulnerable. We, we assume that it, it is possible for it to happen to you the same way it's possible for it to happen to everybody, but we haven't seen that much of it. You know, he had that one knockout loss early on to, to Adriano Martins in like his second UFC fight. And then ever since then, Mahachev has just been blazing through people, granted uh, a different level of competition for most of it, but they haven't seen him look vulnerable as yeah. recently as they feel like they've seen Charles Oliveira, both in some of the fights that he won and some of the fights that he lost. He, he, you've seen that he can be hurt, that that there are openings there, there are possibilities for people to exploit. 
And I think you get really excited about a guy who's put a whole bunch of wins together like that, especially when he's Habib's buddy. Look how well Habib did. Habib saying this is the next guy. I think a lot of people buy into that. Whether it turns out to still be true when you're fighting somebody at the level that Oliveira's fighting at right now, I think that's the question. Yeah, if I'm going to give Charles Oliveira props for having not lost a fight since 2017, I got to also mention, as you did, that Islam Mahajev hasn't lost since 2015. So also very good. Ten wins in a row in the UFC. Currently only ranked number four, however, in the UFC lightweight rankings. Obviously, we don't have a champion up there. So Chucky Olives is officially number one. But Dustin Poirier and Justin Gaethje are still officially ranked ahead of Islam Mahachev. And that has to be because of what you mentioned, that the level of competition that he's fought hasn't been as high as some of these veterans who have been around and have kind of done a round-robin tournament at the top of the 155-pound division. Islam Mahachev's most recent wins are against Bobby Green, Dan Hooker, Tiago Moises, and Drew Dober. Now, those are all obviously really tough guys, but there's not really a top lightweight contender on that list. Like like I say, you don't see any uh, Poirier's or... uh, Chandler's or Gaethje's or even, uh, uh, you know, any of these other kind of newcomers like uh, Benil Dariush or Raphael Fazeev. You don't you don't see a lot of those guys on the the record of uh, Islam Mahachev. He did fight Armand Sarukian uh, a while back. But at the same time, like, I don't know, this is going to be a step up in competition for him. And that's interesting to me that uh, he's such a big favorite when we haven't really seen him go up against any of these top lightweights yet. Well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned somebody like Benil Dariush, like he was supposed to fight Benil Dariush, and then uh, Dariush got injured, pulled out, they put Bobby Green in, and on short notice, that was the last fight. The one before that, he was supposed to fight uh, Javier Dos Anjos. Dos Anjos pulled out, and on late notice, we go and get Dan Hooker. So I'm not saying that he doesn't beat those guys if it's a full camp and everybody is on the same page the whole way through, but it is something worth considering when you look at this run up to the title, that there's a whole lot of wins over guys who are sort of in, you know, a lot of them sort of in the middle of the pack. And then these last two against, you know, good, good fighters uh, with more known names, but also both of whom took it on extremely short notice. Like Bobby Green, I think, took it on like 10 days notice, Dan Hooker on a few weeks notice, that kind of stuff. Um, That does make a difference, especially when you're trying to get ready for a guy who does a specific thing like this. So that just... All I'm saying is if Islam Mahachev were to go here, get beat by Charles Oliveira, and people afterwards were being like, damn, I guess he's not the heir apparent, I think stuff like that might become very clear in retrospect, even if it's not terribly clear when you're looking at 22-1 and on paper. Yeah, I mean, it's not for lack of trying that he hasn't been out there with any of the top guys. It just hasn't happened yet. And maybe I'm just sort of feeling like Islam Mahachev could well be the best lightweight in the world. I'm just going to need to see him prove it against some of these other guys that we think of as the top 155 pounders in the world. I also wonder kind of about the Habib relationship. Like, it seems like it might be kind of a double-edged sword to me. Like, yeah, you're going to have access to, you know, all of this, what you assume is tremendous training, uh, such a broad knowledge base, a guy who's been there and done it, been at the, the highest level. But at the same time, if Islam Mahachev doesn't get it done this weekend, what happens then? Then what do the tweets say? Then what, is, what does Habib have to say next time he shows up in front of the media? So um, it's got to be, you know, helpful, but also a lot of pressure to sort of have in the back of your mind. Yeah. And I, I do think it makes a difference, too, to be in this spot kind of for the first time against a champion 
who not only has a ton of experience just in MMA as a whole, but also more recently has been fighting these kinds of fights against all these 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 hitters, against the big names. Because, you know, Islam Mahachev has had five-round fights before. He's been in a couple main events. Uh, he's gone, you know, at least to the fourth round in one of those uh, five-round main events. But he hasn't been in this big, you know, pay-per-view main event title fight situation before. And Oliveira has, very recently. He's gotten, he's had a chance to get pretty goddamn used to it. And to get used to even some of the adversity that comes along with it. Like when you're, he's still saying the commission robbed him out there. So he's been through some more of that stuff. And some more of the ups and downs than Islam Mahachev has been. And when you, sometimes we've seen, you get really used to going out there and just outclassing everybody, running through somebody, and then you run into somebody who is still there after a couple rounds of that and giving it back themselves, and you realize, you know, it's going to be a tougher fight than what you had planned for. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see something like that happen, just to see that big title fight experience come into play. If I'm making my pick according to which one of these two guys walked a blonde lion around the zoo, well, let me tell you, brother, only one of them did, and it was Charles Oliveira. His name is Charles Oliveira, and he walked a blonde lion around the zoo. Can we now that we've made it to fight week, and Charles Oliveira is out there? Uh, he's posing for the pictures, uh, wearing all the the gear and everything. Can we stop with the stuff about how you don't think he's going to show up to the fight? Can we? Can I mean, we at least stop with that part of it? I mean, it seems like people still want to argue about who is or is not the replacement for this fight, it's just because maybe they're building a wall around their hearts. They, they don't want to get their hopes up too much that the fight's actually going to happen. But can we at least stop this sh- this bullshit of you don't think he's going to show up on fight night? Yeah. He's there. Hey, man, I'm on record saying I thought that was weird from the start. I thought yeah. that that was a weird way for them to go with their with their media interactions. Because then when he does show up, what then? What then will be said? Or what do you think then? So we'll find out Saturday night. You assume, uh, knock on wood, we're going to come out of this with a lightweight champion. So let's see. Let's see who who we get here. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, did you see that our home state is a, might be about to pick up a new uh, resident? Did you I see did, this? I did see this, yeah. The athlete, Paulo Costa, is out here on Twitter to, wanting information. Tell me everything I need to know about living in the state of Montana, he says. Are you fucking kidding me? Am I about to see Paulo Costa down at the farmer's market? Going through the kohlrabi, trying to pick up some secret juice down there. Is, is this is this is he going to be my neighbor? Is Paulo Costa? Are we going to have a sitcom where Paulo Costa moves in down the street from Ben Folks? You know what? I got a spare room I could rent out to Paulo Costa. I think it'll make for some hilarious anecdotes on both sides. Also, if Paulo Costa wants to talk about some secret juice, has he had a red beer yet? Yeah, you know going to be down at the Mo Club. Paulo Costa going to get a Subaru and a dog he never keeps on a leash. Just drive around Missoula with his coffee cup from Black Coffee. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Call me when you get here, Paulo. We'll hang. Absolutely. Paulo down there in the basement at Double Front Chicken all day long. Just putting plates away. Putting putting (laughs) full full white meat dinners away one after another. He's never going to make middleweight again if that's his strategy. Going to be rolling up out of there on some Ben Rothwell shit at 292 pounds. (laughs) Well, Jed, my are you fucking kidding me? So, Jorge Masvidal here interviewed, I believe, by Mike Heck at uh, MMA Fighting. And and the topic goes to Nate Diaz, 
who he says, quote, That's good for him to leave the big leagues before he gets serious brain damage. I think the guy's like borderline vegetable. In his interviews, his spunkiness, his wittiness, his sharpness has gone to shit. Like, you have to wait for him. The pause has gotten longer. You used to ask him a question, there'd be like a two-second pause. It's like a 30-second pause now. Good for him, man, he said of Diaz uh, leaving the UFC. He shouldn't be in the big league. He's going to get hurt, man. Take that old-ass dude somewhere else, you know? Plus, I almost killed his ass as the referee saved him, so I don't really like him too much. Chad, take that old ass dude somewhere else, says Jorge Masvidal, <laughs> age 37, of Nathan Donald Diaz, age 37. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. This is what we're going to do. Also, uh, I believe it was John Nash on Twitter who pointed out that, uh, especially since kind of the consensus opinion right now is Nate Diaz looking to bounce from the UFC to do one of these boxing matches, probably with a Paul brother, in which he'll make a ton more money than whatever he makes in the UFC. It's a hell of a sport if you're telling me that the minors pay a whole lot better than the majors. Fucking kidding me? Yeah, fucking kidding me. All right, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back. Round number two. Chad, for the first time in his UFC bantamweight title reign, Aljamain Sterling will fight somebody who is not Peter Yan. And that somebody is former champ TJ Dillashaw. Now, I think we're kind of in an interesting point for the title reign of Aljamain Sterling because, as you will no doubt recall, here's a fella, won the title by, uh, you know, the other guy doing a little bit too much the first time around. Illegal knee... Uh, at UFC 259, uh, last uh, March of 2021, he gets the title, but everybody's kind of looking at him like, you're not the real champion. You know, you you won the championship through essentially a loophole. And then he goes out there and honestly looks pretty damn good in the rematch against Peter Yan. Gets the split decision, still pretty uh, a pretty close fight, but defends the title, now the sole champion, and now we go, let's see, who else is out there in the bantamweight title picture? How about this fella TJ Dillashaw? Been in the conversation for a while, except when he wasn't, for, you know, EPO-related reasons. What do you make of this pairing right now? I mean, it's a little bit bizarre, right? I understand TJ's still a top fighter, and he probably deserves the shot and all that, but it's just like... I was just looking at, at his record. TJ Dillashaw first won the bantamweight title in 2014 when he defeated the monster, Hennon Barrow. And you just like look at the list of guys that he has fought at that level. Some of them aren't even around anymore. Your Hennon Barrows, your John Linekers, your Henry Cejudo's, although I know he's talking about making a re-entrance. The rest of the guys, like, they're not even really in the conversation anymore, man. Rafael Asuncao, even though he grabbed a win over the weekend. Cody Garbs, Joe Soto was a short-notice guy, but was one of the uh, one of the TJ Dillashaw title defenses. It's just, um, it's like a, it's like a, a, a name I haven't heard in a long time, if I'm going to yes. Obi-Wan Kenobi this shit with TJ Dillashaw coming out here to fight for the Bantamweight title. And if he were to win the thing, 
I don't know, man. I don't know how to how to feel about that. Like he will proudly say that he never lost this this title the second time that he had it. Uh but that is to leave a large part of the conversation unsaid. Yes, it is. Well, also though, there's the fact that his last win is that Corey Sandhagen win, which a lot of people at the time felt like should have gone the other way. Definitely wasn't anything like a dominant, clear victory for him. And even that was kind of a long-ass time ago in fight terms, you know? That was July 2021. And so I could understand how a lot of people who are just sort of keeping an eye on the big UFC fights and the big UFC events are going, wait, TJ Dillashaw? He's still in it? Because you haven't seen him in a while. And in that fight against Corey Sandhagen, it wasn't like he was absolutely demolishing the guy. And so... It does seem like the UFC has just always kind of liked TJ Dillashaw and looking for opportunities to give TJ Dillashaw title shots. Do you also think it's just that they looked around at bantamweight right now and were like, you know, you you got two fights against Peter Yan, we can't really just turn around and do a third one now. Everything else is, you know, still on the stove, still yeah. cooking. Yeah. Nothing is really absolutely clearly ready yet. So why not TJ Dillashaw? Yeah. You know, we described it as a target-rich environment when we talked about uh, uh, Cub Swanson coming down to try to fight at 135. But you're right. After Peter Yan and TJ Dillashaw on the official rankings, you get into guys like Marab Dvalishvili, Chito Vera, uh, Rob Font, these kind of guys, guys that you're sort of like, all right, well, they could they could use a little bit more seasoning. Sandhagen, of course, is up there, as is Dominic Cruz. Uh, but at the same time, I guess if you just take a look at who's available, maybe it makes sense to give... TJ Dillashaw this shot at the title right now over on the DraftKings sports book. It looks like all Sterling is the slight favorite minus 175 TJ Dillashaw going off at plus 150. If all Sterling wins this and dispatches TJ Dillashaw, is that meaningful to you in any way? Does that, cause we had a, you know, the, 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 the unfair public, narrative on Aljamain Sterling at first was, oh, like he doesn't deserve to be the champion. It was somehow, as we always do in mixed martial arts, we felt like uh, Peter Yan got screwed, even though he was the guy who cheated, right? Uh, so we tried to make a case for him. Of course, Aljo comes back, beats him convincingly in the in the rematch. But are we still, are we still like, are is there an element at work, I guess I will say, that is still suspicious of all Jermaine Sterling. And if he beats this guy, TJ Dillashaw, who used to be the champ, but also hasn't really been around very much and won this split decision over Corey Sandhagen, is that meaningful in any way? Is that going to be the thing where people are like, okay, now I guess I must accept all Jermaine Sterling as the king of the, the heap here. No, I think the people who don't like all Jermaine Sterling and don't want to give him credit as a fighter are still going to find ways to not do that. And I mean, and TJ Dillashaw being an ex champion who, uh, hasn't necessarily made a rock solid case for this title shot to begin with and has been off, you know, for over a year. I think that'll give them all the excuse they need. Also, doesn't help. I mean, if I'm TJ Dillashaw, I must have been thrilled to see Aljamain Sterling tweeting his way into some some fan ire over the weekend because that's when I just go, you know what? I'm just going to put my phone away and make sure I don't tweet anything because all I need yeah. to do is shut up right now uh, and let this guy lose whatever fans that he, he still has. But I think there's a whole lot of people who, because of the way he won that title and, and 
you know, then you come back, you win a split decision against the guy in the rematch. Just going, I still don't buy this guy as the legit champion of the division. If he goes out there and he beats TJ Dillashaw, there's a bunch of ready things that you could point to if you don't want to accept it. I guess the thing you would have to, though, figure out how to make your peace with is, if not him, who? Because, you know, you come off a win, even if it's a split decision win. He looked pretty good in that fight against Peter Yan. If he comes out here and he looks good and he... he either finishes TJ Dillashaw or beats him very, very clearly, then he's, you know, he's definitely the guy to beat. There's, there's no one else above him right now at 135. And I think that even if people don't really want to give him the credit, skill-wise, he looks pretty good lately, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't even know how I would uh, approach a TJ Dillashaw title reign in the year of our Lord 2022. Like, I just... We're not like ready. I said, Emotionally, like I we're said not at ready the top for that. of the show, it just it does this doesn't compute to me. I would have yeah. to be like, wait, who who's the champion? What year is it? Yeah, what? I mean, those Could of us happen, who remember when you did a, a virtual video face off with Hen and Burrell, <laughs> that, that that feels like half a lifetime ago. Indeed, it does. Indeed, it does. All right, anything else you wanted to say about this bantamweight matchup? Um, I hope everybody makes it to the fight. Since that's the thing we're just speculating on now. Have we, who, wait, have we seen, has Alzheimer's Sterling walked a lion? Has he walked a lion I, on a chain? I'm not sure if either of these gentlemen has have walked a lion headed into this. Okay. That would be important for me to know. Still time, though. Still okay. several days from, from this fight. You could probably go online and reserve your lion walk today and get it done before Saturday. You know what, if I was feeling like there was a risk that I might not make it to the fight or if I was, I was somehow cursed that, that whatever I did, I wasn't going to make it to the fight, walking a lion wouldn't be one of the things I would do in my preparations. Because <laughs> wouldn't that just be so MMA for somebody to be pulled out of a title fight because a lion took a swipe at their calf or something? Yeah. He can't make it to the fight on Saturday. He was eaten by a lion. <laughs> so that's too bad. Withdrew due to mauling is what the Wikipedia page would have to say. We're pushing this baby back two weeks. I think he's going to be fine. In any case, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, I've said it before, and as we get closer to fight night at UFC 280 over there in Abu Dhabi, I am not any closer to understanding what we're doing with Sean O'Malley and Peter Yawn. I continue to say it feels kind of like the UFC just got bored with the guy, got fed up with Sean O'Malley, and they were like, fuck it, we might as well find out what he's got, have him fight Peter Yawn. And I would say in addition to that, as everybody knows, if there is one mixed martial arts podcast that should be in the bag for Sean O'Malley, it is the Montana-based co-main event podcast about an hour and a half down the road from Helena, Sean O'Malley's hometown. It should be us. We should be all over Sean O'Malley. And yet, when we were down in Vegas for the meetup around, what was it, UFC 278, uh, when O'Malley was introduced to the crowd... UFC 276, excuse me, uh, for his fight against Pedro Munoz. And we were we were at a live watch party at uh, at a sports bar that was packed. I could not believe the crowd reception for Sean O'Malley. He was 
Uh, he got far and away maybe the biggest pop of the night from the from the live crowd there. So he's clearly a very a very popular guy, a guy who enjoys a lot of fan support. What on earth are we doing feeding the guy to Peter Yawn at this stage? Well, it does seem like the UFC has also been surprised by how strong the response is for Sean O'Malley. Because I mean, when I went to that. The one two summers ago in Las Vegas, the Conor McGregor Dustin Poirier, the the leg break fight, you know that's the one where Sean O'Malley fought late replacement Chris Matinho, and I was surprised when he came out there. This arena just exploded for him. He has caught on, and I think that the UFC is looking around, going, "All right, we're not sure exactly what to do with that, but we don't want to just keep feeding him people to style on." And the last time we tried to give him a, a you know, a, a slight step up in competition, but not really overmatching him, you get this eye poke ending, you know, you, you, you don't really get a, a, a clear winner out of it or anything, and you're not sure exactly what the next step ought to be, I think, after a fight like that. And so then I do think they kind of went, well, fuck it, let's find out if he's good. You know what? Uh, Peter Yan needs something to do. Uh, we need to sort of clear up the bantamweight title picture, the contender picture. Let's see. If you go out there and you just get your absolute ass kicked by Peter Yan, well, then maybe Peter, Peter Yan's back in that conversation. And then maybe we know a little bit better about where you stand. And I, it does seem like they were just going for a slow build. It wasn't, didn't really seem to them like it was going anywhere anytime soon. And so they went, let's find out. And, uh, you know, credit to Sean O'Malley for uh, for being like, okay, yeah, I'm ready to find out too. Because, you know, you're 15-1, 15-1 with one no contest, and you're going to go in there and fight a pretty tough guy in Peter Yan. You better be ready. You know, like that is, that is a big jump up. Yeah, it does seem to me like kind of a classically UFC move. It's sort of like to spend hours setting up one of those elaborate domino demonstrations and to get like three quarters of the way through it and just be like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to knock it over right now. No one will care. No one's going to care if I finish it or not. It's just a very, very UFC move to suddenly do this to Sean O'Malley. And uh, I guess, you know, he's still unbelievably young. The guy's only 27, even now after all this time. So if he goes out there and gets defeated by Peter Yawn, it's probably not the end of the road. For him, but at the same time, I uh, don't think it would be great for the trajectory of Sean O'Malley. And you're probably right; it might be meaningful for Peter Yan to 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 get a win over O'Malley here, kind of reinject himself back into the contender list in this division. Uh, I just, I don't know, man. It's almost like uh, they, with the Pedro Munoz eye poke, they they realized in one fell swoop how tenuous and and uh, hard it is to engineer a come up in some ways there's just sort of like well we keep trying and weird shit keeps happening so we might as well just fast forward to the end stage of this thing and find out if he's got what it takes which is is a it's not exactly fourth dimensional chess i don't think let me ask you this little thought experiment for you if he had beat pedro munoz knocked him out or something and then they said okay sean o'malley or Pirion, would you be like yeah that's a progression that makes sense to me I mean, not really, man. 
Like Sean O'Malley is is number twelve in the UFC's bantamweight rankings. Peter Yan is number one. There are eleven <laughs> guys between them. There are literally, uh, I guess Pedro Munoz is number eight. So had he won that, he probably would have gone up, you know, considerably. But like, uh, I don't know. It seems like there are a lot of other people that you could possibly choose to to get him a fight, especially with how much time and effort they seemed to to spend. Given Sean O'Malley, guys like Eddie Wineland and Chris Moutinho and, and, you know, tried to give him Marlon Vera. And that was one of the fights where we find out Cheeto maybe is a lot better than we had yeah. uh, given him credit for. So, like, I don't know. It's like they spent all this time trying to build this kid up. And then all of a sudden they're just sort of like, ah, screw it. Let's just we'll just fast forward to the end. Flip to the last page of the book and find out what happens at the end. It's, it's a very strange thing to do. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe between the what happened in the Marlon Vera fight and then the Pedro Munoz fight, they went, maybe it's a lot thornier than we thought to try to engineer a come up. And yeah, so, I mean, I, I think that's one of the things they learned. It's like it's just weird shit can happen. And, it's, 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 and that's kind of always been the case in MMA when we have tried to take this track to try to uh, take a more boxing style of matchmaking philosophy to, to build yourself a star. It's just in MMA, it seems too unpredictable. There's just too much different stuff that can happen. And it's never or rarely, I guess, worked out for these people. Uh, are you ready for though? A kind of useless fact that is nonetheless interesting to me about the career of Sean O'Malley. I'm, I'm more than ready. If the, if there, this is the platform, if ever there were a platform for a useless, but interesting fact, here we are. Well, Chad, you know, Sean O'Malley came up through the Dana White's Contender Series, fought there in July of 2017, then was signed to the UFC, made his debut in December 2017. All his time in the UFC since then, let's see, now not counting his Contender Series fight, that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine UFC fights so far. Sean O'Malley in the UFC has yet to fight anywhere other than Las Vegas in the UFC. Last time he fought somewhere other than Las Vegas was at LFA 11, May 2017, where he fought in Phoenix, knocked out David Nuzo with a, a spinning wheel kick. So that sounds fun. But uh, before that, before that, we were talking about Newtown, North Dakota, Great Falls, Montana, Helena, Montana, Chodo, yeah. Montana. And now you're going mean, to go to Abu Dhabi. And after that, the first fight in the Ultimate Fighter finale in December of 2017, it's all exclusively been UFC numbered pay-per-view events for Sean O'Malley. So yeah. like that, that right there shows you that they thought that he was a person that they could try to build up. And it just makes it seem even stranger that we're going to uh, just have him go out there and fight Peter Yawn out of the blue, which just doesn't really even make sense. I would also say, man, it's hard to believe we've been doing the Contender Series for five damn years Yeah, at this point. But apparently that's where we're at. Uh, what else, if anything, do you look at on this UFC 280 card and think to yourself, well, that's one I'm going to highlight. That's one that I want to make sure I'm in my seat for. You know what? Uh, Medil Dariush and Mateus Gamrot. That's yeah. one where I think that that ought to be a good one, especially because it feels like Benil Dariush has had a hard time just getting that thing that'll get him to the next level, that'll get people to realize that he's pretty goddamn good and to get a little bit more of a groundswell of support for him. Because he, he had that decision win over Tony Ferguson, but everybody's kind of like, eh, Tony Ferguson is washed at this point. You know, uh, had uh, some pretty good 
knockouts before that uh, Scott Holtzman and uh, Drakkar Close. So the, had, he had good performances in both those. You know, he submitted Drew Dober. Uh, like, good, good, but not big name kind of opponents. And he struggled to get that kind of thing and to be on a fight card like this that people have been looking forward to for weeks and weeks. And even if you are not necessarily the marquee guy, and if you're just the guy where your manager is telling you, don't worry about it, you're totally the backup, bro. Like, huh. a, lot of, a lot of eyeballs are going to be on this one, and you're going to have that chance to make a case in your division at the same night that the title in your division goes up for grabs. And if you can really make the most of that, then that could be a real difference maker. Yeah, yeah. I'm a little bit interested to see Sean Brady and Bilal Muhammad. Also, yeah. Sean Brady's uh, undefeated, 15-0. and 0. He's 29 years old. He comes in, hasn't fought in almost a year, but he comes in uh, off that defeat of Michael Chiesa uh, in November of last year, which, you know, Michael Chiesa, not too far removed from being a streaking contender himself. But Brady's been kind of overshadowed as everyone else has in the welterweight division by uh, Kamzat Shemaev hype. And so it'll be interesting here to see him Get a test against Muhammad, who's the number five ranked welterweight. Brady is currently number eight, so it's a it's a fairly uh, important contender fight, I guess you could say. Uh, and it's it's like you know, you look at a guy like Sean Brady. Like to me, this he's only he's only had what five fights in the UFC so far, but he beat Jake Matthews in a previous fight. He beat Court McGee in his UFC debut. This feels to me like more of an organic. Uh, contender build than what you get with with somebody comparatively like Sean O'Malley. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what Sean Brady does because if he beats Bilal Muhammad, he should be right there in that conversation. It's just that right now the conversation is about Kamzat Chimaev and nobody else. Well, one thing I want to make sure that you are aware of since you know you were thinking that UFC 280 was last weekend, I can only imagine yeah. your disappointment when you fired up Man. the ESPN Plus. Wait till you guys find out what happened. Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> But uh, this one, UFC 280, does actually go down on Saturday. But, Chad, the prelims start at 8 a.m. in the One True Time Zone. Main yeah. card at noon. Just want to make sure that that's on your radar, that you're prepared for that. Because I could imagine a situation in which you get your snacks all together. You get comfortable on the couch around, a clo- around you know, 7.45, 8 p.m. at night on Saturday. Thinking, all right, it's this is pay-per-view time. This is what time the pay-per-view starts. And then you realize, oh, crap. This shit has been over for hours. Yeah. I don't want to see that no, happen to you. Couldn't, couldn't happen at a better time since uh, my beloved Montana Grizzlies have a night game on Saturday. So there you go. Maybe we daytime UFC... UFC all day, Montana Grizzlies all night. What? <laughs> you know what? I don't think there's a whole lot of people living that life, but it's a good life if you are living yeah. it. <laughs> all right, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, Leon Edwards needs a new contract. That, he does. That is what Leon Edwards is saying. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> that makes more sense. I'm reading this story over here on the BJPen.com where Leon Edwards uh, giving an interview to somebody else, but I'm not going to look up who it is, says, I need a new one now, 100%. Uh, and when asked if that was th- those discussions had begun, replied, not yet, because as far as dates and fights, that normally happens when you talk about fights, because you use the fight to negotiate the contract. When it's time to start talking about the fight and the date of the fight, we'll start negotiating a new deal and go from there. He's also been saying, 
as I'm sure you've heard, that uh, this one, this rematch with Kamaru Usman, that needs to happen over in his neck of the woods this time. And uh, he has said that he's talking about Wembley Stadium. That needs to happen over there in England. Uh, Now he's talking about how he's going to need a new contract before he can do it. I'm just saying, just a word of advice to Leon Edwards. Just because you have that title doesn't mean that your negotiating leverage with the UFC is unlimited. Because look to some cautionary tales of the past. Even new champions who didn't necessarily want to do exactly what the UFC wanted them to do found that uh, they didn't get to call all the shots. And I'm just saying, I'm all for you getting your your new contract, getting paid to do that rematch with Kamaru Usman. You know, if you want to come over and do a big stadium show in England, sh- sure, I'm not, I'm not t- entirely positive that's the one that packs 90,000 people in there, but maybe it does if you get a really good card. I'm just saying... You know, let's tread a little bit lightly there when we're the brand new champion. There, we're not, we're not exactly all the way in the driver's seat on this one. We're kind of easing into that driver's seat. I'm just saying. Yeah, just something to think about. I'm just saying when you start saying I need a new contract, but we haven't talked about it yet, and we won't talk about it until we start talking about our next fight date. That to me generally is the shortest distance between yourself and a sudden interim title fight announcement <laughs> yes. that takes you by surprise that you find out while you're on holiday. Yeah, and they and they use that holiday against you. Don't think they won't. It's also just like you might think you 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 need a new contract, but they might point to the champions clause in your existing contract. Yeah, you know. Ben, did you did you watch Deontay Wilder this weekend? I did. Went out there and knocked out Robert Hellenius, and then uh, you know, not to end things on a somber note here, but I'm just saying, it kind of seemed like Deontay Wilder knocked this man out so bad that he kind of scared himself. Because did you see him come to the post fight press conference and and yeah. like very emotional up there on the stage uh, talking about uh, Pritchard Cologne. And the brain injury that he recently suffered, talking about how uh, what a what a tough sport this is, and and how he's uh, he's a proponent of fighters. He supports fighters, even if they're guys that he has to go up up against. It's just like if you haven't watched it, anybody out there, I know it's not MMA, but uh, you should track it down and watch the footage of the Deontay Wilder post fight press conference, just because uh, it will remind you that we're dealing with sports here that have uh, real-world consequences, real-world, real-life consequences. It's not uh, sometimes Sometimes there are bigger concerns than just, like, who who wins the game, who wins the uh, the match. So you should track that down if you haven't. It also might be a reminder why uh, the, the revenue split should be fair and that there should be some kind of ongoing pension and health care because yeah. you never know which which one of these nights could change your entire life. All right, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please join us over on Patreon. We'll be over there all week with the Wednesday live chat. Thursday's doing the damn thing. Friday's power hour. And, of course, if you join up at any level, you get access to the official co-main event podcast, a Discord message board where people are constantly over there talking about all manner of subjects, fighting <laughs> and otherwise. It's just going 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So if you need some people to talk fights with, you can find it over there. Check us out. Patreon.com slash co-main event. As for right now, though, thanks for listening, everybody. We are done. We are through. We are out. 
Did you see that the big homie John Lineker returns? That he's in action? This uh, this is this Friday, right? On uh, on the Prime Video One FC on Prime Video Three. Then the always uh, just snappily named one streaming events. But this is uh, you know this is one you might want to check out if you want to fill your weekend with MMA. John Lineker going to defend his one bantamweight world title in a, in a weekend that uh, that figures to be pretty big for the 135 pounders, I guess. Yeah, and this one seems like it starts at a reasonable time, too. We're talking about 8 p.m. in the one true time zone. That's right in my fight watching the house. Uh, I do find it interesting. You know, John Lineker comes in here, and it feels like John Lineker has had a million fights yeah. at this point. Uh, I think at, looking at the card right now, it lists his official record at 35 and 9. That can't be right. I swear he has 75 fights at least. Uh, against Fabricio Andrade bringing in a record of 7 and 2 into this one. Um, I'm rem-